Hi, I'm Yusuf Hassan. And I'm Tigistia Mare, and you're listening to Africa Where, a podcast from the Chatham House Africa program. Welcome back to Africa Aware. On this episode, we will be reflecting on one of the projects that the Africa program has undertaken last year, our Policy for Recovery series in collaboration with the United Nations Development Program, otherwise known as UNDP. With this being such a wide-ranging project, we felt it would be appropriate to highlight some of the key interventions from this series. But before we begin listening to them, I would like to invite the Assistant Director of the Africa Programme, Tigisti Amare, to provide an insight into the project. So Tigi, why was this series such a key project for the Africa Programme? Thank you, Yusuf. So the past two years will be remembered for the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on health systems first, but also on economies, including how it amplified existing structural inequalities in income and poverty. Africa appeared to be more resilient to the immediate health impact of COVID-19 than many more developed parts of the world. This was puzzling to many, of course, and was attributed to the continent's youthful populations, lessons learned from health emergencies such as Ebola outbreak, ongoing community health programs, as well as fast responses from national leaders. However, the economic impact is hitting Africa harder than any other recent global crisis we've had. There are many reasons for this, but to name few, the lack of broad social safety nets in the continent, the high number of workers in the informal economy, the impact of the pandemic on sectors such as tourism, which has in turn impacted many other areas of the economy. As such, African countries uh, will have to rely on capital markets and court investor confidence to gain the trust of capital markets. This means reducing risk by strengthening the quality of their national institutions, stepping up good governance, transparency and ease of doing business. But progress will depend on cooperation between a broad variety of stakeholders and will require new thinking on policy formation and engagement with different actors. As such, the dialogue series we convened as part of this project aims to bring the stakeholders together to engage on these key issues affecting post-COVID recovery in Africa. We hosted a series of discussions as part of this dialogue and published commentaries as well as other types of outputs that presented different range of opinions and insights focused on what policies are needed for accelerating recovery. Thank you, Tiggy, for the introduction. Why don't you now take us through what the dialogue series covered and some of the key messages that were relayed by our panellists? We started the series by exploring key issues confronting African governments for getting access to vaccines, in particular looking at policies, financial capital and international support and regional cooperation, of course, that is required for developing vaccine manufacturing and supply chains in the continent. At this event, Dr. Amaka Vani, the president of the African International Economic Law Network, highlighted a key point on intellectual property frameworks and innovation in Africa. While the SDISA seems to adopt a Western approach to IP, it also acknowledges African traditional medicinal knowledge, which I believe is a step in the right direction. This is because increased pharmaceutical industrialization within the continent 
requires creative engagement, particularly with actors outside your stereotypical frame of pharmaceutical innovation, such as your local herbalists and your local medicinal doctors. These are the people that create products that could qualify for patent protection, even though they operate outside of research institutions or the prototypical laboratory or factory. Such an approach could enable efficient engagement of often missed scientific artifacts and practices into inaccurate innovation record. So for instance, when you talk about innovation in Africa, right? Innovation and the development of traditional medicinal products are usually not included. And this is one of the areas where Africa has strong suites. Importantly, documenting these trends, especially within the traditional medicinal sector, could help shape continent-wide initiatives and policies aimed at accelerating local industrialization. In fact, Section 2.2 of the STIA documents states that an objective is to protect knowledge production, including inventions and indigenous knowledge, by strengthening intellectual property rights and regulatory regimes at all levels. So it is good to see that at regional levels, there are initiatives recognizing the value in our indigenous traditional medicines. And as an aside, this particular recognition of inventions and indigenous knowledge is quite distinct from the TRIPS agreements, which makes no reference to traditional knowledge. One of the initiatives of the AU was to um, adopt an instrument establishing the Pan-African IP organization, Right now, the um, the PIPO, as is as the short form is known, hasn't fully concretized because it has not been ratified and it, has, it hasn't come into force. I think out of the AU members, I think only six or so. I'm not really sure of the numbers that have um, signed onto and onto the PIPO. With the coming into force of the African Continental Free Trade Area, under which African countries began trading in January 2021. A follow-up discussion assessed the significant milestone in Africa's integration journey, but also the priorities for implementation and how to ensure that Africa's diverse youth population, particularly its most socio-economically marginalized, are able to benefit from it. Our keynote speaker for the event was Wamkele Mene, the Secretary General of the African Continental Free Trade Area Secretariat. And he highlighted the tensions between consolidation of regional integration and individual national sovereignty. The AFCFTA is uh, is not a customs union. Uh, it's a free trade area. And that means, therefore, that, that we are legally not in a position to negotiate uh, as a bloc. In other words, as, a, as AFCFTA or as Africa. Individual countries continue to have um, exclusive jurisdiction, exclusive competence uh, to negotiate with third countries. So we don't uh, uh, have the mandate uh, legally to um, uh, to negotiate um, on behalf of uh, as a bloc. One day when we become a customs union, then we will be in the position to negotiate on behalf of the entire continent, because in a customs union, as you know, there is a common external tariff. And so uh, um, we we will, at that point, be in a position to negotiate um, as a bloc. What we do now is a, a, a fair amount of advocacy, advocacy to, to say that trade agreements that countries 
enter into must support regional integration in Africa. So um, if, if a country is engaging in a trade agreement with a third country, the expectation is that um, that particular trade agreement must support uh, regional integration on the African continent. We, we have, um, uh, the, it is of course uh, something that heads of states recognized that there may be some disruptions um, if, if, uh, uh, if third countries start negotiating. Um, in fact, there's a very clear decision of the Assembly of Heads of States and Government of the African Union where they agreed that um, we should first consolidate, uh, consolidate the AFCFTA and its implementation. At the same time, I should stress, at the same time, countries have the right, under the AFCFTA, countries have the right to enter into uh, third country agreements uh, uh, as as they as they um, as they deem fit, as part of the, their exercise of sovereignty, so it may appear as if there are tensions between what I've just said. That on the one hand we say we want to consolidate implementation of the AFCFTA, on the other hand we say that um, uh, the that third countries uh, you can enter into a trade agreement with a third country, but it is it is uh, in practice. We have to recognize the reality, um, and the reality is that is that countries will want to exercise their sovereignty uh, by entering into uh, trade agreements with whomever they may so wish. The third event in the series, as well as an expert comment by Professor Carlos Lopez, reflected on the multilateral and bilateral initiatives for debt cancellation, debt relief and debt restructure as well as considering the importance of reducing capital migration. At the panel discussion, uh, Mary Wangari Wamae, the Group Executive Director of the Equity Bank Group, explored the necessary factors to foster an environment which facilitates financial inclusion and the growth of small and medium-sized enterprises on the continent. Now, if, if we approach it from the point of view that we can take in initiatives that are going uh, to support the economic activities and that will support businesses, uh, the small and medium enterprises, uh, businesses, the, the large enterprises, and then the smaller corporates uh, in the various sectors. And as equity, we have identified um, the sectors that can be really um, impacted very quickly. We have identified sectors like the health sector, as we did with the pandemic. We have identified the, the agriculture sector. We have identified manufacturing, um, e-commerce, because now we are all going e-commerce and, and COVID has really fast-tracked that, and the digitization uh, initiatives. And, and of course, the issue of financial inclusion it almost feels like we are almost going back to where we started, where we really had to really tackle the issue of how many people are banked uh, among the, and the, the bankable population because COVID has really taken us back many steps. And uh, from my perspective, I think 
if we have a strong initiatives to support financial inclusion programs uh, and also programs like financial literacy, I feel that uh, what would happen is then we have uh, more small businesses um, becoming sustainable and getting larger and uh, the, the individuals are able to save more. We have more savings available in the market. And then what happens is that then there's more money flowing to support the domestic markets. The, the government can actually borrow more from the domestic market and there'll be less, less control or rather there'll be better control of the cost of that credit. And what will also happen is that if there are more savings, then there's also more money available for lending to either the same businesses in uh, different sectors or to the to the government through pension funds and um, other other savings um, uh, vehicles. I, I, I do think that a lot of money can be mobilized in that way. I think one other thing that the policymakers can, can, can think about um, uh, the access to capital markets is uh, if I take the case of Kenya, for instance, uh, there's a time that um, the capital markets had actually introduced a counter which was dedicated to the small and medium enterprises. And that was um, a while back, just to encourage small and medium enterprises to access the capital markets, go listing on the stock exchange, the Nairobi Stock Exchange, uh, get access to funding easily. But for some reason, that counter has not really caught on for some reason. So I think we need to find out why exactly are the small and medium enterprises not able to access that counter? Is it that we have put very severe uh, requirements for them? Uh, probably we have put the same requirements like we do for the larger corporates or the multinational or global businesses to list on the stock market. And they, they, they are finding it very difficult. Actually, it's a barrier to entry into that se sector. And that would be a good vehicle for, for businesses to to raise money um, and then that to ease uh, the, the requirement for the government support and all that. During a panel that was convened to discuss gaps and opportunities towards multi-stakeholder cooperation for achieving Agenda 2063 and the Sustainable Development Goals, Laurel Patterson, head of SDG integration at the UNDP, underlined the opportunities that existed in the post-COVID context to drive acceleration towards the SDGs. The choices made today in these most difficult years of COVID accelerate in their benefits, particularly between 2030 and 2050. This is not an easy political uh, argument to make. The choices that uh, you make today, those hard, difficult choices, potentially transformative choices, you'll bear the fruits of those uh, you know, in two or three political cycles down the road. But nonetheless, we think from the perspective of understanding and making uh, effective policy choices, Dave, we really need to understand this. And I'll share a couple of links with you at the end. That whole uh, uh, study and analysis is online. You can search for any country, a whole set of indicators aligned with the SDGs and take a look at what that would mean uh, for your country in those different, different scenarios. What we've done as well too, and I just want to, pause for a moment is that there are, of course, a number of different ways, options, and pathways to drive acceleration. And what I just wanted to share here was a couple of areas 
where there's particular promise and opportunity, especially uh, for the Africa content. This is work uh, that UNDP is leading with a with a, again with a coalition of partners to understand where are there investments and opportunities that have cascade impacts. How can we make policy choices in some areas that have benefits and impact across several others? And we know that in a space of limited and shrinking um, financing, it's really, really important that we work together. We harness this potential of integrated analysis and we try to pinpoint those areas that are going to have multiplier effects and cascade benefits. So this is certainly a focus for us and you see particularly around energy, harnessing the potential of Africa's natural resource wealth, as well as opportunities for intra-African trade uh, have huge potential as we've seen them to drive not only a recovery from COVID, but accelerate progress towards the SDGs. In the final event of the series that explored regional development planning and coordination, panelists discussed the challenges facing transnational development in areas affected by conflict and insecurity, as well as reflecting on lessons learned from across the continent on how cross-border development frameworks can be implemented. Our keynote speaker, Ambassador Maman Nuhu, the Executive Secretary of the Lake Chad Basing Commission, stated the key challenges that impede the Lake Chad Basing Commission's ability to adequately deliver. Some of the most pressing challenges that continue to impede on the capacity of the Lake Chad Basing Commission to adequately deliver, uh, first of all, the ongoing conflicts in the region. The volatility of the region due to the activities of Boko Haram hinders the speedy development uh, of projects and implementation. Uh, Another problem, of course, is insufficient funding. The devastation in the region requires huge financial investment for reconstruction and rebuilding of the communities. Inadequate funding to carry out uh, scheduled programs remain one of the main challenges of the Lecture Basin Commission. It is pertinent to underscore that the activities of the Commission are capital intensive and require secured and sustained funding to ensure success. Both national governments, friends of the region, and donors are encouraged to support the efforts in the region. The third challenge is, of course, inadequate human capacity to execute and manage some of its programs. For instance, the regional stabilization strategy and its various components are relatively new areas of engagement for the LCBC and the challenge of sourcing the requisite manpower to man such specialized components of our programs was evident, although it has now uh, been sorted out. In conclusion, may I reiterate that the LCBC is always seeking partnerships with institutions and organizations that wish to invest in the region. Being a knowledge-based organization that shares best practices among its member countries, the LCBC looks forward to establishing partnerships towards developing policies, ideas, and sustainable projects towards the transformation of the Lake Chad Basin into a viable hub of human development that positively supports the existence of its over 40 million inhabitants. 
And that brings us to an end of this episode of Africa Aware. We hope you've enjoyed listening to us throughout. On behalf of the Africa program, we are very thankful to every single one of you for listening to this podcast. This season has covered a whole range of topics from climate change, economic growth and kleptocracy to various peace and security challenges facing the region. This was a new output stream for our program and we are incredibly proud to see how far it's come. So thank you once again and thank you for joining me today. Please do subscribe on the platform that you're listening to us on so that others are able to find the podcast easier. And thank you once again for joining me. And thank you for inviting me, Yusuf. I've been your host Yusuf Hassan. Goodbye.